Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hi, everyone. Ben here. Got another great episode for you today with Sandy Call. She is an SVP over at Franklin Templeton and spends a lot of her time there focused on the future of wealth management and specifically digital assets. She has a great background across all sorts of sort of business ventures on Wall Street. Uh, she started as an analyst working at Shearman Lehman way back in the day. She's been a PM at Goldman. Uh, more recently at City, did a bunch of interesting things there. So this was a great conversation and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks. And we're live. Hello, Sandy. Hi, Ben. How are you? Good, good. Uh, happy Monday. How was the weekend? It was excellent. Beautiful weather. Spring is here, so no complaints. Yeah. Where, where are you based? Uh, I'm based in the New York area. So oh, okay, yeah. Sunny, bright, warm weekend, which was awesome. Yeah, I've only ever been to New York in the fall, which is probably comparable to the spring. But it was, you know, really nice, 75, not humid or anything, not too hot. Um, so probably good we can be out and about. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. Well, let's uh, let's maybe just start with your intro. You know, give my listeners a little bit of who Sandy is, you know, what you're up to now, where you got into digital, and we can just kind of explore it from there. Perfect. That sounds great. Well, thank you for having me on today. Yeah. Uh, really exciting to talk about all these topics, which I have a huge amount of passion about. <laughs> um, I've been in the industry a long time. I'm old. I'm one of these old people that like crypto. Um, I actually started in the industry uh, in the mid-1980s, and I started in the commodities field. And uh, it's pretty funny because I actually started as a reporter on commodities, um, but after about a year, my sources told me I was way too opinionated to be a reporter. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I became an analyst. Okay. Uh, I was an analyst in commodities for about 10 years and then was a portfolio manager for about five years after that. Um, when they told me that my 17% annualized returns was just not good enough for the portfolio in the late 90s. So that just tells mm. you about how crazy the markets were in the yeah. late 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I got really into the internet, which was coming out at the time, and really started understanding the potential of this technology to completely transform how financial services were delivered. Um, and so I joined a company called Scient, which was one of the big, real, high-flying industry consultants at the time. Okay. Uh, and I did a lot of definition of the early models of how we deployed the internet, online trading applications, research portals, help design alerts and notifications, okay. things completely for granted today, but they actually yeah. had to be designed and figured out. Sure. Uh, then I got into more uh, operational and management consulting and started really focusing on hedge funds and what was happening in the hedge fund industry. Uh, in the early 2000s, when hedge funds were really taking off and you were starting to see sure. them become multi-product, so equities and fixed income and sure. 
Um, and uh, then I was working on that straight through the global financial crisis. Um, and Fun. then Citibank, uh, <laughs> where I actually helped to launch their hedge fund consulting practice after um, the big financial crisis. And, and the hedge fund industry had changed so much then, and it was becoming much more institutional. And so we really began to see hedge funds become much more professional. And okay. as they became professional, they started expanding their product range and started getting into long-only funds, getting into private funds. Sure. So soon I was writing about the entire investment management industry. And I had started almost our own proprietary research group within Citibank uh, and did that for over a decade and really started writing about how was the industry evolving. So the next one to three years, what was coming, and how was the investment and wealth management industry potentially being set up for a more revolutionary and disruptive change? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when I started following blockchain and crypto sure. back in uh, 2014, 2015. Oh, wow. Pretty early. Yeah. And came out with a big paper on this in 2017, um, talking about tokenization and how it could really disrupt equity and bond trading. And sure. that got, obviously, a very big... <laughs> Action from people in 2017. Um, but it really ignited my own passion. And the more I came to understand the space, the more I really started to see the transformative potential. And I think now we're just at such a critical tipping point that I really decided I wanted to be a part of making it happen. Sure. So I had the benefit of being able to see what firms all over the world were doing in this space. And, um, you know, Franklin Templeton, under the leadership of our CEO, Jenny Johnson, was just so much at the forefront uh, of what they were designing and developing and doing in the digital asset space that um, I reached out and I asked if I could come join the firm. And I've been here just over a year now, and it's been fantastic. Awesome. So what uh, what attracted you, I guess, in a little bit more detail to what Franklin is doing relative to any of the other, you know, global names we all know as far as blockchain goes? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the asset management industry, you know, a lot of them are public companies, as is Franklin Templeton. Sure. And as a result, you know, there's always a lot of pressure on the quarterly earnings and, you know, what are your short-term activities and what is your short-term fundraising? And, and these are realities and pressures that all these firms have to deal with every day. Um, but what's interesting about Franklin is that while it is a public company, the Johnson family, which helped to establish the company, is also still very much engaged in the management of the company. Okay. And Jen is our, our third generation of the family that's running the company now. Okay. And she feels the weight of that multi-generational responsibility very keenly. Okay. And so she's really thinking about, you know, her job as CEO is not only to manage the firm as optimally as possible today, but to set the firm up for success in the far future, which means paying a lot of attention to where new opportunities come out. So they started investigating blockchain just to kind of understand what this new ledger technology could do mm -hmm. back in 2017, 2018. From there, they really began getting deeper and deeper into the space. Whereas, so now today, we have an on chain government money market fund that we're actually running 
the books and records on the yeah. public blockchain. Uh, we have developed a research practice where we're doing research on individual coins that we consider to be important coins able to deliver investment propositions in the emerging ecosystem. And we're doing model portfolios uh, of those multi-coin portfolios, anywhere from 18 to 20 coins in a portfolio. Okay. We have a, a range of model portfolios from fully systematic to fully discretionary. Okay. Um, we have a, a venture capital fund that has been making seed and series A investments into the space. Okay. Um, and I think we've been running our own node operations to really that too. be a part of the network. So yeah. all of that was going on well before I got there. They get all okay. together. But it was very exciting to me. And I really thought, what a fantastic foundation to be able to work with the company and really think about how the space is, is going to evolve and change. Okay. That's, that's great. I, I want to come back to the model portfolio thing because I was kind of... I didn't see that immediately in, you know, perusing the website. Obviously, model portfolios are huge for advisors these days. Most advisors are definitely trending in that direction. What what is the model portfolio offering for wealth managers right now, especially in light of, you know, regulatory concerns, compliance, and maybe, you know, some advisors certainly have a disposition to not engage with digital. So maybe walk me through a little bit about that offering and how all that's going for advisors. Sure, absolutely. So we deliver the model portfolios in two forms. So for advisors, uh, we've been working with a company called Eagle Brook. Uh, yep. And Eagle Brook has been, um, they set up the separately managed account and they implement okay. the model portfolio. Uh, and they hold the coins as a separately managed account on behalf of the investor. Okay. Uh, looking to extend that partnership uh, with some other uh, SMA providers as well. So right and now, we're they're going all SM SMA route for read for wealth uh, advisors. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong. SMA really is the only way to kind of do that for advisors currently, right? Well, right now uh, in the U.S., that seems to be the best way. Uh, sure. You know, Europe, we're exploring doing an exchange-traded product. That that's okay. a little bit more the preference when you get outside sure. the US. So, you know, it, we're still early days. Eventually, we fully believe all these things will be in normal investment funds. Sure, uh, yeah. Trying to work our way down the path with yep. folks. Yep. Um, and, you know, we've really seen from our own investigation that when you can include even just a, a 1% or 2% allocation, um, to these investments, you know, it really can have a significant impact on the return. And, and while it does increase the volatility, when it's that small an allocation, it doesn't increase the volatility ex to an extreme degree. So, you know, yeah. it's all about, you know, right sizing the exposure in these early days when the landscape is still just really being defined. Uh, but there's tremendous opportunity there. And, and I think it's important. We call these digital frontier risk assets. And just like you would try and get sure. your client's portfolio into any frontier emerging yeah. market, yeah, yeah, yeah. really got to kind of think of these in that sense. Sure, sure. I, I hear that a lot from almost anyone who's managing assets, whether it's the advisor or an actual asset manager. Everyone's take is, you know, two to five percent is probably the right amount. <laughs> Anything more than that, you might be taking too much of a risk. 
Yeah, right now, right? And, sure. you know, and you keep reassessing that. Just, I mean, private debt is another really great category that we saw this same trajectory. I mean, 12 years ago, the private debt market barely existed, right? Yeah. And now it's over a trillion dollars in assets under management, but that's because, you know, the capacity slowly built over time. People became more comfortable with the risk profile that these private deals represented. Yeah. Um, and that really opened up that marketplace. So we think it's going to be the same kind of pathway for digital assets. Yeah. And I mean, DeFi will definitely be a part of expanding that private debt market as well, too. You know, it's Absolutely. Intimately related. So yeah. um, let's see. I was curious about a little bit about your career. So you have been around the block a little bit. Um, <laughs> yes. And you've seen you've seen multiple ways of technology come into financial services. Can you maybe just walk through a little bit about just... Because this kind of came across in doing my research for just on who you are, too. You tend to, at least what I've seen, position yourself more as kind of like a futurist looking to what's forward. Um, So I guess I'm just curious, how has this tech, you know, financial services technology journey been for you? Like what what did you maybe learn from it that people can take away? And then where where do you think we're going as maybe a follow up to that? Well, here I'm going to I'm going to show you just how old I really am, Ben. Because when I started as a reporter in the industry, I one of my jobs, I was covering the frozen concentrate orange juice market. And they used to send out a weekly fax from the Florida Growers Association or something sure. on the state of the crop. And I had to wait by the fax machine, which was a thermal drum that yeah. actually rolled and printed out one line at a time. <laughs> Of the facts, and it took about 10 minutes to get a, sure. a one page fax when I began. Um, and then, of course, there was no uh email at that time. Really. <laughs> I had the first set, uh, the first personal computer that they had deployed. Um, I was at Shearson Lehman Brothers at the time, I had the first personal computer, and I had my five and a quarter inch floppy disks and was putting in Lotus one, two, three and word perfect, all these all these software programs. Those are names I don't even know. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. When I got my first computer with a mouse, I had absolutely no idea what to do with it. It said double click the mouse, and that was like green. Yeah. <laughs> so I've seen a lot of technology come in. I saw the launch of the internet, and I remember, you know, Bill Clinton talking about this amazing future where you would be able to buy tickets online and pick your seats. And that just sounded fantastic, like almost science fiction. Um, So I I think I've lived through so much technology change that I take it as a given that this is really going to continue to transform how you do work every day. I mean, now we're all playing chat GPT, right? And we're all (laughs) like throwing prompts into chat GPT to find out how quickly our job is going away. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I've done that. (laughs) Yeah, I think most people have. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's obviously over the last 30 years, like just an incredible amount of change. What, um, what, what I guess excites you about sort of digital and financial services? Is it sort of the stories you, everyone kind of tends to hear about democratization and access and transparency? Or how do you kind of a, approach the space? What keeps you interested in it? Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, I, I do love the idea of democratization and transparency, but I don't think that would have in and of itself really gotten me so excited. 
Um, I think what really did it for me was when I started to understand the potential of what it meant to be able to embed a smart contract in an asset, mm-hmm. right? And if you think about how business is done today, whether it's buying a house, buying a car, even just getting insurance, right? There's so many offline documents, right? There's there's just documents and then there's intermediaries who negotiate the documents and then there's operational folks who input the terms of the document and you need to set up payments and you need to make sure you move that money each month. And there's a lot of frictions in just how we do transactions today. Sure. When I started to understand that a lot of this could become automated and the contract could be embedded inside an asset and move with the asset uh, when transactions occurred, it just made me realize that this was going to change everything, right? That this was going to completely open up the potential to democratize not just access, but to democratize access to things that were always beyond the reach of most individuals. Um, And by that, I mean things like royalty pools where, you know, you can't have 5 million investors in a royalty pool. It would just, administering it would be a nightmare. Um, Or being able to share in community benefits across an entire community of participants, right? These were things that just you wouldn't even have been possible because the administration and operations of delivering that would have been impossible. And I, you know, one of the statistics I like to tell people is when the airline industry introduced the Sabre computer system, which was like the first big proprietary network that was a computer that was being used to improve business outcomes, it took 90 minutes for a typical airline reservation agent to make a reservation before Sabre came out. Okay. And once Sabre now they were able to do 7,500 transactions per hour. So it went from one yeah. for 90 minutes to 7,500 per hour. And that just completely changed the accessibility of airline travel and opened up the world to people. And I think sure. that we're on the verge of that same thing happening in commerce. Interesting. So you think about it more broadly as commerce, not just sort of expanding the investable universe of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. Um, Yeah. Because like when you're walking through that, what I was thinking is like, it's great, obviously, to expand the investable universe that I'm going in that direction. But um, with that, obviously, like if you can now invest in royalty pools and you're just a retail trader, or maybe you're just a retail investor, rather, not not a trader. Like, with all this new access comes all these new challenges, right? Like, have have you thought? Has Franklin thought about that component of sort of this transition we're in? Well, we're really this is one of our big research and development areas right now, um, because, and I think you're picking up on the really interesting shift that this represents for society, Ben, which is what has been my investment portfolio has kind of been something that exists to the side of my life, right? I, I put my money in my investment portfolio and I hope it accumulates over time. And then I hope I have enough as I start to get into retirement to go through decumulation and, and draw it down, right? Mm-hmm. But, 
by being able to bring new types of investment instruments into the portfolio, that same contract, that same smart contract that's governing kind of loyalty pool can also bestow upon me all sorts of benefits for the artists that I really like. I can become um, almost like a super fan and get access to private chats or better tickets or shows. And so there's this interesting duality that's starting to happen, which is my investment portfolio can actually start to help me live a richer and more enjoyable life. So it's not going to be something off to the side yeah, Increasingly, I think our investment portfolios are going to be part of what really supports us determining how we live our life and where our money gets spent um, and that we get more opportunities because of the investments we make. And I think that's going to be a really exciting move that will really strengthen the importance and the centrality of the role of wealth advisors, because my wealth advisor almost becomes, in a sense, my life enabler. Um, not just my That's, retirement enabler, but my yeah. actual how I live my life day to day. That's actually a really interesting point because one of my takes with it, just any advisor, like it's an uphill sale because you're talking to a prospect or a client about something they need to do today that has an emotional connection, like that dopamine hit that takes place 20, 30, 40 years from now. So, you know, it makes sense to save for your kid's college and for your retirement and to have an emergency fund and all these things. But generally, most people don't get a great dopamine hit from putting 500 bucks a month into like, you know, maybe your kid's college, maybe, but like emergency fund, probably not so much. Right. Um, So being able to kind of tell like an emotional story today to help people invest for the future is a really interesting thought. I've never actually heard somebody articulate that before. Yeah, we're really, you know, it it kind of has been dawning on us that this is really more than just an expansion in the types of assets you can invest in. It's really a shift in the model of Mm -hmm. how your investment portfolio, how you engage with your investment portfolio. And we're super excited because think about it. You can get like, you know, 15, 14, 15, 16 year old teenagers. They might get super stoked about investing in a fund where they can own the hottest new collectible sneakers, right? And they can be part of that sneaker fund and they can like talk to the special sneaker designers and get special, you know, digital art that only the owners can have that get them really excited about being in an investment fund. And, oh my gosh, if I had started investing when I was in my teens, I'd be in a lot better position than I am now. Sure. But you can see where that teenager who starts by investing in sneakers might really, as they get into college and get through college, they might rotate their interest and you can rotate their portfolio into what is ever of the interest to them at that stage of their life. And you can see the investment portfolio and the assets that get put into it really evolving as a person grows and and what you get exposed to changes, but each time it changes, it brings new dimensions of how you can enjoy your life at that stage of your life. Yeah. How how does... I mean, have, has Franklin put thought into how to, I guess, kind of engage this, I don't know what you would call it, I guess, idea to the public, you know, like, do, how, how do you guys get your thought processes and sort of 
prognosis, prognosis, it's a different word, prognosis, I can't think of it. Um, I can't, I can't say it. Prognostications. Uh, prog- yes, thank you, about the future. Because um, to me, education is always like the big part of the story. Like, it's great that interested people, you know, yeah. you, me, other people in the space know about these things, but how do you get it to everyone else? Well, I think in part, this is going to happen a little bit naturally because we're already working, as are many people in the wealth management industry that serve the wealth management industry. We have designed what we call inside Franklin is our portfolio go, our goals optimization engine. Okay. We're already, and I think you see this across a lot of asset managers and wealth managers, we're already thinking about I don't want to deliver a generic solution. Like the solution I want to give Sandy is going to look very different than the solution I want to give Ben. We're at different points in our lives. We have different demands on us, right? So we've already begun to think about portfolio construction as something that needs to be individualized and tailored, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're already starting down this path with the tools that are available today. We're doing things like direct indexing. Sure. tailoring of portfolios, tax optimization. So we're starting down this path already. And then what we're thinking about coming in from these, what we're calling cultural assets angle, is how would you do it, right? What kind of smart contract template might I need to be able to create a port, you know, to create an asset that I can actually bundle into a portfolio? It's not quite an NFT, it's not quite a fungible token. It might be something that sits in between the two. You mm-hmm. know, how do I create the right smart contract template? How do I get a blockchain to work with me to maybe try deploying such a template? How do I think about bringing in completely new kinds of talent, right? I don't think that there's a portfolio manager in Franklin Templeton today who would be really well suited to picking a music portfolio uh, or, you know, a, a wine portfolio or a sneaker portfolio. Sure. So how do I bring in the right experts and how do I get them to understand portfolio construction, right? So mm-hmm. it's not going to be a fast transition. I want to be clear on that, but I think yeah. we have to vision of what the technology enables that it's just a matter of kind of working through issue by issue, how to get us there. Sure. What, I mean, we've kind of been talking the optimist side of things where, and you probably are uniquely situated to some of (laughs) the naysayers out there who may just, we'll say, uh, don't have as favorable a view on the space. What, what are the big roadblocks that you and Franklin see in terms of, the next three, five, ten. Yeah. So I, I think one of the hardest things about the space is that a lot of attention has been put on the early assets that people have been trading. Bitcoin, sure. cryptocurrencies, you know, tokens, meme coins, yeah. happy, all these meme yep, coins. Yep. And you know. It's easy to isolate that part of the discussion and say, these things are worthless. They have no value. Yeah. Right. Um, It's easy to look at what happened with FTX, which actually had nothing to do with blockchain and nothing to do with crypto, other than using crypto tokens as collateral. Yeah. Um, 
and, and say, oh, the whole space is corrupt, right? So I think it's easy to dismiss it. Um, and it's hard to understand it because it's a new way of operating. It is not the same type of commerce that we have had historically. So I kind of get why a lot of people are alienated by it in the, you know, at the first blush. Yeah. What you find, though, is that as people open up and start to really kind of understand what's possible, and here's where I think the question you asked me earlier about what has happened with technology in my own life, right, Yeah, is you realize that, no, this is an underlying set of new technologies, and that new technology is going to really enable new ways of interacting. And so I have no idea, like, you know, if these layer one blockchains are going to be around in 50 years and sure. of new economies, or if they are, you know, the proof point that's going to lead to the next thing that's going to be around in 50 years. But what you can count on is that this technology itself brings together many of the innovations that we rely on every day. It brings together network technology. And look how social media has just changed the world in the past 20 years. We're yeah. all part of networks now. Yeah. It brings together cryptography. And you think about how cryptography has changed the world and how you don't even think twice now about submitting a payment over the internet or sure. paying your bills from your bank account over the yeah. internet, right? And it brings together commerce, which... Mankind has always engaged in commerce from the time that we were cavemen, and it brings together investing, which is also an area that is constantly looking at new applications and new innovations. So, you know, whether this is the final form or this is the transition, it's very clear what the technology enables. And once you take it away from the emotional, am I a Bitcoin maximalist or is this, you know, counter revolutionary? Sure. Yeah. You get to, well, the technology enables new things. And once these new things start to work in society, they start to make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, today when I make a purchase, that merchant doesn't get paid for typically 72 hours. Yeah. When I make a purchase on a blockchain, that merchant gets paid probably within 10 minutes. That's a yeah. big improvement. Things like that aren't going to disappear just because people don't like or feel like the people who design them are are more, you know, libertarian or anarchist. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, this thought occurred to me last night thinking about this podcast today. Um, it kind of feels like the industry has sort of a PR challenge a little bit, you know, like people are really kind of gunning yes. at, you know, blockchain, crypto, the conglomeration of it. But if you think about like cloud, people don't hate cloud. You know, like people love that their, their photos are online, right? And they can download, you know, family videos from Apple, right? Like that, it it just, it kind of seems like when you're in the space, people expect you to know all this crazy stuff about the underlying tech and how it works. And you need to be an engineer to actually really get this. But, but going back to cloud, people don't ask you to know how they code the cloud, right? Like they just know that you can all your videos from it or stream from it or like you just get the value out of it. So it kind of seems, I guess maybe we as an industry need to talk more value rather than features, I guess. 
Well, and I think, look, it, it's coming from the open source community and yeah. particularly in investment management. I mean, it really wasn't that many years ago where the investment management industry hated cloud and they didn't believe in cloud. And they yeah. said, we'll never, we need our proprietary applications because the cloud is simply not safe and we can't trust customer information to the cloud and we must stay on our slow, difficult to run <laughs> batch yeah. process proprietary systems because the sure. cloud is dangerous. And as you said, here we are, you know, 10, 12 years later, and it's like everyone is on the cloud. Yeah. So I think there is, you know, I, I always think that this, uh, I always like the Schopenhauer quote, like everything, you know, meaningful is, you know, first ridiculed and then violently resisted and then accepted as self-evident. So yeah. I think we're getting into the violently resisted stage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after last year, yeah, everyone's got, you know, plenty of talking points to come after crypto and DeFi. So yes. <laughs> um, did I mean, did 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 you notice any of that last year with Franklin and talking to clients and, you know, people in the space? Did you get a lot of pushback because of headline risk from, you know, certain now defunct businesses? Yeah, I, mean, I think we have to really explain a few things over and over. And I think it's important that we explain them. Number one, we are a 75-year-old asset manager and we are global, which means that we work with regulators in every jurisdiction that we operate. And I think it's 135 countries that we operate in. So you know, we are a highly regulated entity and we have no problem being a highly yeah. regulated entity. And we plan on remaining always a highly regulated sure. entity. Right. So, you know, first off, our interest in this space is about capturing where new growth opportunities are and where new return opportunities are going to be for our clients. And therefore, we need to be understanding what's happening here and really exploring and being part of the space to help shape it so that it is a safe environment for our clients. And we talk to regulators all over the world and we're engaged with these regulators. We're working in sandboxes. We want to help bring these technologies forward to a place where they are something that you can be confident accessing. And we also understand that there's a lot of innovation happening here and that you have to also be able to engage with these innovators and not you know, try and shut down their enthusiasm, but try and help them understand how bringing in the learnings of decades of experience in running successful funds and marketplaces really can help them improve their offer. So it's a lot of give and take with regulators. It's a lot of give and take with the people creating the space. And it's a lot of explaining to our investors that we're only going to do this in a very responsible manner in conjunction and at the pace that the regulators are comfortable with and in manners that they feel honor our responsibilities. So I think that, you know, we've been doing a lot of education and a lot of explaining, and I think it's really helping. And we're getting great feedback sure. from our investors and a lot of positive feedback. Even if they're not ready to invest, they really appreciate the learnings that we're able to bring forward to them and the points that we're helping them to consider. So I think you know, as I say, everything is a journey and we're, sure. we're in the early stages of this journey. Yeah. So when you say investors, are you talking institutional or are you talking retail or I guess I'm well, curious. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think it's the whole range, right? It's big institutions that some might be starting to put 
crypto or digital assets into their emerging manager programs to test them out. Some sure. might be wanting to learn how does the space really operate? I've heard a lot of hype, but I don't really understand it. Can you help me uh, learn about it? Then it's a lot of wealth managers and, and wealth advisory networks that really feel like, wow, this is important and my clients are interested in it. How can I understand more and how can I start to think about whether and how this might be appropriate for my clients? And then, you know, there's a lot of direct to retail where people are already investing. And yeah. what we're trying to do there is say, hey, look, you know, this is great that you've got this enthusiasm. Why don't you work with us and understand some of the research we're doing, understand how we're putting some of these portfolios together because we can bring the same active management expertise that helps you optimize your stock portfolios or your bond portfolios into this new space. We're, we're active managers and we believe in the power of active management. And so we're trying to help those who are already investing, thinking about how to do it maybe in a more effective and, and a more diversified and safer manner. Sure. Sure. I, I came across something interesting when you spoke about the retail direct-to-consumer side. I didn't realize you guys have um, the Benji app. I didn't like that. It was cool to see that. And I, I, I just took this at like at a quick glance, but it is your digital interface for retail, right? Is that pretty much it? So this is uh, the Benji app is where you can actually download this from the Apple App Store or the Google App Store, Benji, B-E-N-J-I. And it is an interface where you can set up after you go through your KYC AML process, you set up your key information, you link it to, you know, your bank account or, mm -hmm. you know, and then you can directly invest in our on-chain government money market fund. And, you know, with interest rates where they are, that's been a really great product recently. It's been returning over 4%. Yeah. I'm not sure the exact number, but it's, you know, it returns yeah. whatever the government bonds are returning. Sure. And you know, the money market fund, it's just that you can hold it on-chain and you can buy and sell it directly. So that's an exciting advancement that does open up this space, I think, more easily to individuals. And it currently just focuses on that money market on chain fund. Okay. Yes. Right now we're just we're just doing this because that is a regulated security and we're sure. offering it as security. And you know, that is about where the regulators are comfortable right now. Sure. Um, but you can see as the regulators get more comfortable and the rules become clearer, that Benji app can become a portal to being able to invest in anything that really makes sense for your portfolio. Does that mean that Franklin is interested in having exchange capabilities? Um, or no, it's not really an exchange. It's more just an interface where yeah. you, you know, we're, we we would still put the orders through to exchanges, and this sure. is just a customer interface because we believe a lot of people do like to do it themselves, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have become very well educated in financial matters, and they really do have strong views and. You know, there's a lot of gamification that you can do to really understand portfolio construction. So a lot of people want to do this themselves. And our hope is that, you know, giving them tools where they can directly access some of the newer products is something where they can add this to their own portfolios. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Um, I mean, these days, everything is available online. So if you really want to be a CFA PM, you could go do that. <laughs> so <laughs> just got to invest the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Do you, I mean, do you have any 
questions for me? Um, I, I could keep going down my list of stuff. Well, what do you think? Like when you're talking to people, so like I've been out talking to a lot of networks and I think a lot of advisors are interested, um, yeah. but a lot of advisors feel uncomfortable pulling the trigger. What do you think are some of the most, some of the biggest impediments to them getting more comfortable in the space? Yeah. I mean, specifically for advisors, I think it really depends the, the the way I think about it in my mind is where where do they sit? Are they at a wirehouse, a broker dealer, an RAA? And based on that, you're going to have different capabilities within uh, each of them. I mean, if you're in, you know, JP Morgan's private client group with a couple hundred million bucks, they'll probably do whatever you ask them to, right? But you know, if you're just uh, retail kind of uh, you know affluent client at JP Morgan, you probably won't have as great access to things. The flip side of that is if you're way on the RAA side, it really depends what you as the business owner are willing to assume in terms of your responsibility. So if you like digital assets, and there are definitely RAs out there that are very big into it, whether they're family office or an RAA, they you know, have an interest in the space and want to be there. So they're going to assume the liability to be there and they're going to have to, you know, take everything into account for that. So who do we, how do we actually invest? How do we custody? What's our security? What's our process? Do we have insurance? All those things, right? Um, My general take is that regulatory clarity needs to come down and most advisors would probably prefer to access it through an exchange traded product. Um, or, you know, if you have enough dollar value in SMA, but yeah, I think the space is there. Um, I kind of think that there's sort of a generational divide here too. Like the older crowd generally doesn't, isn't as inclined to adopt it as the younger crowd. And I would bet over the next five to 10 years or so, particularly as older advisors retire and those books are either sold or passed on, the adoption digital assets and portfolios will definitely increase. Um, But right now, it's a combination, I think, of inertia and regulatory clarity that's kind of putting a pause on the space. If we can get, you know, a spot Bitcoin ETF, Ethereum ETF, that would be, you know, you'd you'd see things pick up a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I think so, too. And I think, you know, as you said, education and understanding, I think, is a key part. People need to just get past a lot of the headlines and and start to really understand that, look, we invest in new technologies all the time. And wouldn't you have liked to have invested in Google in 1998 versus 2018? There was a big return difference in being able to get in that that earlier window. Um, And so I think that you know, all these things that once seemed very revolutionary and very uh, suspect as to whether there was really a business model there, you know, then they become completely commonplace investments. I think we're just at the beginning of that same cycle here. Yeah, I I generally think so too. Um, Like one thing I think that people will certainly become more in tune to is just, uh, you know, people talk about um, data being the biggest commodity in the world now, right? And nobody likes being a product, right? So if Google offers you email for free or Facebook offers you an account for free, who's making money? And it's they are on you, right? So that that conversation, I think, is going to resonate with people as we go forward. 
just to take back a little bit of control. Because, you know, if you are, say, you know, a little bit of a creator like me, if people are sharing my stuff, like if I can, you know, attach some ownership rights to that and get a little play for it, like, why wouldn't I want that? You know, and I just, I think overall that reclaiming your digital identity is going to be a pretty big theme going forward. And I really think it's going to be on, go beyond just reclaiming your digital identity. I really believe that our data is going to become a key source of our income in the future because yeah. people can see your transactions, but they don't know your data. And so if you have a transaction record that's interesting to them, they're going to bid for you to share their data with you, with them, so that you, you know, so that they can better model customers. But they're going to have to pay you directly and you're going to have to give them specific permission to use your data and yeah. actually create a smart contract to govern the use of it and the payment for it. So I think that we're going to you know, first take back our data in terms of privacy, and then we're going to all really be enabled to sell our data throughout our whole lifetime to help bring in additional income and supplement what we're earning. So I think that it's going to be very exciting from that yeah. perspective. Have you spoken with Rick Edelman on any of this by any chance? Yeah. Okay. He's been on the podcast and you'd mentioned something a little bit ago about um, just telling the story and getting in front of people. And Rick is definitely probably the biggest one as far as financial advisors go telling the story. And there's so many interesting things he talks about just in terms of, you know, longevity and how your investments need to stick with you in case you do live to 110, 120. And what do you actually do when you're that old or you know, just his um, his thought process around the future definitely is eye-opening. Yeah. So. Well, and I think that, you know, really understanding that each of us have so many resources that we are going to be able to monetize in the future and, and get all of these passive income streams coming in to supplement what we actively do, I think that's hugely exciting. I mean, look, if you're a part of the Helium network today, which is super tough to get into because there's so much demand for it, but basically if I install some software on my computer, they use my router when I'm not using it. I mean, think how many hours a day you're using your router. And uh, why not sell that excess router bandwidth when you're not using it, right? And so people are going to realize they have hundreds of assets that other people would like to use um, and be able to do it. And we've seen it with, you know, with Airbnb and people sharing their houses and and Uber and people sharing their cars. But those are big assets. And I think people realize is they've got a lot of personal assets that they don't even really think about that people are going to want to be able to share. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fascinating time. I mean, listen, listening to some of his stuff made me rethink my own sort of plan and investments. <laughs> like, I I wasn't planning on living to uh, 120. That would be that might be too long for me, at least what I think currently. But who knows? Um, I think it's going to depend how healthy and active you can be. My father yeah. just. 88 and like i mean he's traveling like crazy and going places and sharp as a nail and yeah. they're living a great life now my parents are living a great life in their 80s and i could definitely see him going another 30 years based on how active and engaged and healthy he is so that's incredible it's that's great inc- to see right <laughs> where, where are your parents traveling right now um at 80 uh, 
they're actually getting ready for a trip where they're doing, uh, they're going to uh, Norway, Switzerland, and Italy. <laughs> and oh, then wow. later they're going to Korea. I mean, they're kind of really very, very active. Sometimes yeah, so <laughs> they're actually doing it. So they're doing what, like two, three week, four week trips at a time sort of thing? Yeah. That's exhausting. <laughs> I think it's exhausting. But yeah. Maybe- plenty of energy for it yeah my wife and i did uh like both i think it was 16 days a little over two weeks a couple years ago for our honeymoon and by the end of two weeks of like hard traveling it, you know we were ready to get home <laughs> so yeah. yeah yeah no they're great they're doing great so That's I, fantastic. Believe, I absolutely believe he's making it to at least 100 he tells okay me nice there you go well you'll have to live up to the same then too <laughs> hopefully yeah um well let's see we got about 10 minutes left here. Is there anything specific you want to kind of leave with in regards to, you know, bots or what Franklin's up to or markets or whatever? Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is that sometimes we can take a very U.S. centric view about this whole emerging space. And and oftentimes, because the U.S. regulators, I think, are having the hardest time figuring out what to do about these new assets uh, and give the impression that this is the whole global attitude toward it. So I would just like to kind of bring forward that there are many regimes right now, regulatory regimes that are very open and very inviting uh, around these new capabilities and are actively working with ecosystem participants to really create the right set of rules to make this a welcoming environment. So you know, you've got this new um, markets and crypto assets, MICA regulation uh, proposals that just came out in Europe. You've got, um, you know, the Singapore MAS and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. They're very interested in encouraging people. A lot of the Middle Eastern regulatory regimes are, are starting to really try and invite innovation into the region. Um, you're seeing Brazil down in South America yeah. has authorized people to put a allocation to crypto assets into their portfolios. So I think that, you know, if you only look at how U.S. regulators are thinking about it, you get, I think, a more negative outlook sure. uh, about what the future is than if you kind of take that one step back and think globally. And I think that's important because as other regulators start to find the right um, parameters to put the rules in place, that's going to help, I think, the situation here in the U.S. and help some of the conflicts that we're seeing between the CFTC and the SEC and help everybody kind of get comfortable with where they should be regulating and how they should be regulating. Yeah. Do, when you're working with all the constituents at Franklin, what, what sort of percentages, you know, overseas versus uh, in the U.S.? Because um, it kind of sounds like you're saying that, you know, U.S. is great, obviously, but there's this huge component overseas that people maybe tend to ignore. Yeah. Well, what I think a lot of people miss about Franklin Templeton is that Franklin Templeton is actually headquartered in the Silicon Valley area, right? So this whole kind of innovative and technology-driven approach about thinking of the future of markets is very much in our DNA. And I think the majority of the work that we've done so far has been pretty much US-centric. Okay. Uh, But what we're seeing now is that because we've taken this lead and we really 
have done so much work with the U.S. regulators that people are wanting us to bring that that expertise and that knowledge of what has resonated and what hasn't resonated with regulators into more global discussions. And now we're really spending a lot of time talking to international regulators, talking to partners in other regions where we're working on pilots and we're working on ideas of how to bring new products out. So I'd say that, you know, we're we're trying to take a more global approach, not reducing what we're doing here in the U.S., but continuing our path in the U.S., but also now bringing in more regions of the world where things might be able to progress just a little faster in the short term. Sure. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems, you know, my own little seat here in Sacramento that I don't know why there's so much trouble to get regulatory clarity around this industry, just given sort of the excitement. Like everyone, I mean, I have a very biased network, I guess, because everyone is interested, but but it seems like, you know, despite headline risk and, you know, markets and all that, people are pretty adamant that this is like the next big thing, you know, similar maybe to like how people felt about the internet, right? Like pets.com is gone, but the internet is very much a thing. So um, I guess I I don't don't know what needs to happen to get, you know, the regulators sort of in line to help innovation in the United States, but it seems like that would be a strategic interest for us. Yeah, I think that Look, I I think it's partly that the regulators started paying attention a little late Mm -hmm. and a lot of individuals saw, you know, the monies that they invested during the big run up in 2020, 2021 disappear. And so now they feel really gun shy because they weren't in it at that point to really protect people. And now they're coming in later to the game and really trying to think about what are the right rules? And, you know, as we try and point out to people in the crypto native community, once a regulator puts out a rule, that rule is there for a long time. So they want to be a little careful, right? They can't move at the speed of innovation. Um, But what we've also noticed is that some people feel like because of that, they view the regulators as they're very hostile to the regulators and aren't Mm -hmm. really looking to engage and work with them. And and that I don't understand because the regulators, they're not bad people. They're trying to be protective of everyone who's engaged. So working with them is a critical part of building the ecosystem and building the business. And sometimes I think that, you know, it's just, I think, young, enthusiastic builders with yes. slow bureaucratic and and the nature of their job needs them to be very careful. Sure. And so I think we're just at a, a little bit of a culture clash right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but many firms like Franklin Templeton are being very engaged with the regulators and they are helping them to understand, no, these kids are very enthusiastic, but they're really creating something so special. You really have to think about what they're creating and don't get put off by, you know, the way that they talk about it. They're, they're, sure. It's like some innovation is messy, but it's still necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's an encouraging opinion to hear because, you know, if you listen to too much of crypto Twitter, it, it it's very much, a, you know, us versus them kind of mentality sometimes. Yeah. So you need to probably shy away from that. One. Well, it's not in anybody's interest, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like one, one, uh, one person who I think or group 
company who's done really well publicly has been Coinbase in terms of, you know, being publicly listed. You know, they went through all the regulatory due diligence. Like they've been very engaged in trying to keep the space, you know, I, I don't really like the word safe, but, you know, um, all, all its meaning. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been cool to see Brian Armstrong, you know, do his thing and uh, really be an advocate for the space, but also push back where he feels like he needs to because it feels respectful. Um, yeah, and that's that's exactly the right way to do it, right? It's to yeah. be respectful. You can have disagreements, but help educate someone why your point of view might be better. Don't yeah. threaten and don't stomp off and don't swear you're going overseas because they're never going to yeah. listen. Yeah. Little time, get them yeah. to listen. Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, Gary and Brian just need to hop on a podcast until <laughs> they hash it out, and, and then it can be done. I think we should host them then. What do you think? Well, I'll oh my god, them. that would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably the most watched episode uh, of my little podcast for sure. <laughs> All right, let's put it on the calendar. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, hey, if you know Gary and Brian, you can float my name out there. I'd be happy to <laughs> sit in the middle. <laughs> Um, but let's see, uh, we're right at time here, Sandy, anything else you want to kind of leave with real quick? Um, Thank you. It's been such a fun conversation and really exciting to think about, you know, where we're heading and, and where we are at this moment in time. And it'll be fun to revisit it in a year or two and see what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. We got, we got a long way to go with this one for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Sandy. You are definitely welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. It was really a fun conversation. All right. Talk soon. <laughs>